Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University in Kutztown, Pennsylvania, and I'm joined with my friends, Danielle. Hi, I'm Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in beautiful McLean, Virginia. Katie. Hey, everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Kevin. Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, splitting the border of Iowa and Illinois. And kicking it from Marion, Illinois, Josh Benson. Josh Benson at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. I'm just curious, guys, have you ever had trouble explaining to non-arts professionals what you do? For instance, my kids have come to work. They'll, they'll ask me, they're like, Dad, I've gone to work with you. I've gone, I've seen, I know you do something with shows and stuff. I've spent the whole day with you. And my friends will ask what you do, and I can't explain it to them. And I know, like, sometimes I'll just simply say, oh, I'm a director at KU Presents. You know, people will start thinking, oh, I direct the student theater shows and musicals. And it's like, no, that's not really what I do. But uh, just curious, do you guys ever have trouble explaining what you do, or do you have to, like, go into a whole thing like I do? I gave up on it a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my worst title thus far has been um, Artist Relations Manager when I was at Interlochen Center for the Arts up in beautiful Traverse City, Michigan. Where's that at on the hand? (laughs) Uh, Okay, so if you're looking at your hand, thumb to the right. So put your left hand out, the thumb to the right, and then Traverse City is right at the top of your pinky finger. Yeah, so I was Artist Relations Manager up there at Interlochen. People have no idea what that means, and it's a laundry list of responsibilities, so I just gave up after a while. Yeah, I used to work for an arts and education organization where I coordinated residencies and workshops and, again, a whole laundry list of things. And when I tell people what I did, they'd be like, oh, my gosh, you're a teacher? (laughs) Well, not exactly. You know, I support people who support teachers. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's also this aside where it's like, actually, it's my dream. Thank you. Uh, it used to be a lot easier when I was running a theater, but now with like Quad City Arts, because we do things with gallery spaces and public public art, like that's where I get into the spiel. So like, so what do you do exactly? And it's sort of managing all those things. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't know what you do. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're going to keep it that way. <laughs> Josh, now you said you gave up, but that means you've tried it one time. What I simplified it to is I book shows for the space. It's something very straightforward and very narrow within the actual full spectrum of what I actually do, but something that would make sense to them because explaining the, the, the functions within an arts admin role is out of the question as a, cause I mean, that'll just kill the conversation. And let's be honest, like that's the part they care about. They care about like, Oh, you get to book the shows. So Josh said, I book shows in the theater, which is six words. Well, I interviewed Ken Waldman and in three words, he describes what he does. Here's my interview with Ken Waldman. My name is Ken Waldman. I have a a business called Nomadic Productions. I'm an Alaska resident. I'm a fiddle player, and I've written a bunch of poetry. And I have 20 books. I have 12 CDs. And I've been doing this a whole lot longer than I ever thought I would. So I do a lot of different things. So it's Nomadic Productions. Great. Great to have you with us today, Ken. And it's really great to have you on this program from the artist's perspective. You are an artist, but not in just one way that people might think. You're not just a musician, but you're also a writer, a poet. You know, you you play several instruments. Can you just talk a little bit about how you classify yourself as an artist? It would be a lot easier if I just did one thing because it's... I almost have to describe myself differently 
depending on who I'm talking to, because I'm a writer with an MFA in creative writing, which I got as a fiction writer, yet most of my books are now poetry, or really almost all the books are poetry, so there's the poetry aspect, but I also started playing fiddle in my mid-20s, and now that I'm in my mid-60s, that means I've been playing for 40 years, and I've turned into a decent old-time fiddle player. I am a former college professor, so that's part of the fact, I guess, that I'm an educator, but I also played tennis, and then I taught tennis for a while. I do a lot of work as a visiting artist in communities where I go into schools. There's a whole education aspect where I have two kids' CDs and a kid's book among the books and CDs that I have. And then some people think that I'm just a solo artist, but I have friends who are world-class musicians, and I there's nothing I like more than bringing in a bunch of my friends or even making new friends in a place who play traditional music, which is what I play, the old-time Appalachian fiddle tunes, and make a little bit bigger and more interesting show of it. Very cool. Now, I want to back up. You called yourself Alaska's fiddling poet, and is that something that somebody dubbed you, or is that something you you <laughs> called yourself as a marketing tool? Or Well, what happened was I got my MFA from 1985 to 1988, University of Alaska Fairbanks, and I thought I'd be in, in Alaska for three years in that program and be gone, but it was clear to me that I wasn't done with Alaska. I spent a year in uh, Juneau, Alaska, as doing a bunch of different things, and then I got a job in Sitka, Alaska, in, in southeast Alaska, as a visiting assistant professor, and then I got a tenure-track job in Nome on the Bering Sea coast in the Bering Straits region. This job that I made up kind of happened accidentally. I moved back to Juneau, Alaska, and to answer the question in a roundabout way, in summer 1995, there's the Southeast Alaska State Fair in Haines, Alaska, and I applied to perform there, and I was chosen. You said, yeah, you can do a set. You can do a couple sets, maybe, and we were allowed five words to describe ourselves or whatever group we were. I was solo, and I said, Alaska's fiddling poet. And if I thought about it more with the two extra words, I could have said, Alaska's fiddling poet self-proclaimed. But it was just <laughs> Alaska's fiddling poet, and it, it stuck enough that I can still be the Alaskan fiddling poet, and it can still help me get gigs sometimes. That's fantastic. And and it's a great marketing tool because it says right up front, you know, three things that it, and, and it's it's funny too, Brian, because people will it is open doors and I've gotten gigs I would not have gotten otherwise. Now nomadic production, so I've kind of gone beyond it, or maybe above and beyond. If it helps I can be your Alaskan fiddling poet, but I don't have to be. Nomad Productions makes me think of something. I've known you for a while. I know you grew up outside of Philadelphia, yeah. not far from where we're talking today in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Uh, but you're based now for many years in, in Alaska. However, I know you as a nomad, just yeah, like I'm, your I'm company. Yeah, I'm pretty nomadic. You're always somewhere different. Anytime I, I see you on Zoom or we talk, I always ask where you've been because you're always moving somewhere in the world. What happened in 1995, I was back in Juneau. We have a state capital, Juneau, that's in part of the state southeast Alaska. You only get there by boat or plane. But it is the capital city. It's 30,000 people. But if you want to go somewhere, you got to get on a boat or a plane. 
and I had moved back there. I had lived there for a year after I went through grad school because there's there's a population, there's a critical mass of people. It was tough. I didn't really work much there, but everything was, a, was I had to get on a boat or get on a plane. In 1996, I was on tour in rural Alaska, and I had a plane crash. I mean, I was in a plane crash, small plane, uh, and that slowed me down immensely. I have a friend who... Uh, guy named Dan Henry, who you can look him up. He's a writer. He's a, he's a wonderful and very knowledgeable guy. And he said, Ken's plane crash, good career move. Because <laughs> what it meant was I always would have a story to tell. And then because of the, what, the details of that plane crash, there was reason to, for a lawsuit. And then what ended up happening, though, is after I got that money, which wasn't a lot, but it was enough that for a year I just kind of kept going and said, okay, this is not really working. I'm in the capital city, but everything, I have to get on a plane or get on a boat to really work. The big city in, in Alaska is Anchorage, which I swore I would never live. But then in 1998, I moved from Juneau to the big city of Anchorage and that meant that there's a road system there. Anchorage is 350,000 people. It's a good-sized place. I had enough work, but then to, to, to get to the roundabout answer is that in 2000, my first book came out with a, with a small press publisher that, you know, it, it had national distribution. It was a, a, a good, well-regarded small press. And about the same time, I recorded a CD with a friend that got a fair bit of, of airplay, got some good reviews. Then from Anchorage, I'd be flying down to, uh, to Seattle. I'd be working up and, up and down the I-5 corridor. Then I made another CD that got airplay. I was having another book came out. And then you just realized, or I realized, and friends helped me realize, it was really limiting to be in Alaska. So I drove out in 2001 with the idea with two CDs, one book out, another book coming out, and we'll see what happens. And as friends told me then, if you weren't very good in a year, year and a half, you could have licked some wounds and go back to Alaska or do something else. And that was, uh, that was 21 years ago. So you left without knowing any gigs? You just headed to the... I had a couple small gigs. There was There's a festival that actually I'm going to be showing up at in West Virginia. It's the festival of Appalachian String Band Music, also known as Clifftop. And I had heard about it for years, and I thought, well, that looks like that would be fun. So I, I drove out in summer, June 2001. I had a, a gig at, at a, a fellow who had a radio show that was syndicated around... Actually, he syndicated a little bit nationally, but especially around Alaska... And he was in Toke, Alaska, and I did a house concert at his place on the drive out. And then I had, uh, I know I had a job, I remember, in Bloomington, Indiana. I think I had something around Boulder, Colorado, but that was on my way to West Virginia. And that was, once again, it was 2001, and I had uh, a little bit of money still saved. And that just started a process that 21 years later, I've been driving around a lot. For a few years, I was completely itinerant. I had, a, 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 I think, a Nissan Sentra that it broke an axle like about a year, of, I think it was January 2002 in San Francisco going up a hill, and the mechanic said, you're looking for an adventure, aren't you? This, you should not be driving this car across country like you are. 
and I drove it across country one more time, bought a van, and I had that van for a bunch of years, and it's kind of kept going. A few years later, I think 2004, 2005, I was spending a lot of time around Lafayette, Louisiana, so I had a base there, but I've still kept my Alaska residency throughout, and it's, uh, it's complicated, but it makes sense because I'm not, I would say I'm both established, but I'm not like killer established famous where I could afford to keep flying. Everything was a flight and a rental car, and very quickly, that doesn't make any sense. But if you drive around, you can be doing, you can afford to do smaller jobs that are really worth doing. If I was in, in still in Anchorage, I'd be having to get a bigger job just to go anywhere. But if by driving around, I can kind of make it up as I go along and still get the bigger jobs. I go to a lot of conferences. I want to pick up here in a few moments, but first I want to back up to uh, you were a, a professor, you were a writer. Yeah. And my understanding is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you didn't really pick up the music thing until your 20s. I started playing fiddle in my mid-20s. So before, before you go, I just have a quick question yeah. about that. So before that period that you picked up a fiddle, was there any exposure to music or anything that you always thought, oh, I want to do that someday? No, or did it just I, happen? I, and on? what's funny is I have friends who, who will play with me and they go, you're living my dream. I wish I could be a touring artist. You know, you're making your living as a musician. I go, well, I play music, but if I didn't have the writing, the poetry, and the background, I couldn't be doing that. But... I couldn't be doing it without the music either. So I have both. I think when I was about eight, seven or eight, or maybe it was sometime way back then, I had piano lessons, which I did not care for in the least. This was not, and then people would, you know, in their teens play guitar. I never had an interest playing guitar. But I did have friends that got me listening to music more. And there was a time where teaching tennis in the summers, there'd be these bluegrass festivals. And then one friend was into the Grateful Dead really deeply that got me in. And that you look at their background with a lot of roots music. And I went to college in North Carolina, which wasn't for the music at all. And I happened to have, through chance, a housemate who was a banjo player, the other housemate played some guitar and was a percussive dancer. There was a string band music, and there was also a nice scene around Chapel Hill, Durham. This was in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. They had parties at the end of a, and they, those guys were good then, and they're good 40 years later. We were all in our early, mid-20s, and then one guy who wasn't so good left a fiddle, and $100 for the fiddle bow and case, and I don't think I would have gone across the street for that fiddle, but I had $100 and I bought that, and I was stubborn, and I, I was not naturally talented, but I kept at it, and I can play fiddle. Did you have an idea of what it meant to be a touring artist at no, that time? No, Or but did you learn as you went? I learned as I went, but there was a fella I applied. Uh, I've had some odd things in my life. This was never my plan. I mean, that's the thing is I have musician friends who are both geniuses and then just some really solid, good musicians. There was a fella at the time who was with the state, uh, Alaska State Council of the Arts, somebody who you would know, a guy named Tim Wilson. And Tim Wilson, this was back in the uh, mid-late 80s, before he was with Western Arts Alliance, who he's been longtime executive director. Well, they gave me like $300 or $500 of a grant to say, we're giving you some money, 
but you're going to go to Eugene, Oregon to this thing called Arts Northwest. And that would have been like 1997 or 1998. I had no idea where I was going or what I was doing, but they gave me a little bit of money to go there. And it, not that it took, because I really didn't know what I was doing, but I saw that one thing I've realized with doing this is in addition to being a quote artist, musician, a writer, what I am is a perpetual job hunter. And I have never been very good in my social life, relationship life with dating. And yet I have come into a profession where I have to be out there putting myself out there for quote dates for trying to find things and I do it in my idiosyncratic way I do have a, a niche I do some diff something different especially with the outreach and the teaching and I can put together shows that are really phenomenal but there's also a lot of talent out there and it helps to be agented and I've been for the most part a self-represented artist I was so going to ask you about that it's because hard. Uh, as a self-representative artist, a self-represented artist, you um, you have to do everything yourself, all the business part of it, yeah, a including the selling, like you were just talking about. H have you ever considered going, trying to woo an agent, or have you always? Oh yeah, just I've, I've in fact years ago, I was before I knew what I was doing. I mean, it's just so funny. I didn't know what I was doing, and I was at Arts Northwest, and then I went to the the, the conference in Eugene, and maybe it was like a year or two after that. I applied for a showcase and was chosen to showcase. It was in, I think, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho that year. And there was a woman who from, from Toronto who saw my showcase and she was completely charmed. And she just said, I'd like to rep you. I don't even think I even did email yet. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a website, I, but she wanted to rep me. She repped like five or six people. She had a very, very, uh, she had interesting taste. She, she worked with Oscar Peterson, who was Canadian. She had this Vietnamese water puppet theater that was like a, 20 years ago was like a $20,000 act. And then she had me who, she never got me any work, but she got me, she, she, she had me on her roster and we're still in touch. And her line was, you know, you're going to be hard to sell. Presenters won't get it, but people are always going to like what you do. And that's what she said. And, and we're still in touch with stuff. And then a, a year and a half ago, a fella who uh, is a presenter, but there's people in this business who do a few different things. So they present, but they also agent or they, put their, they dip their hands in, they manage. And he has a small agency and he... You know, said I really admire what you do. Would you consider letting me, you know, be your agent, non-exclusive? And I said, fine. You know, if you can get me some work, go for it. That's where I'm at with it. As I have a, a not only this agent, but I have a few other people who could, who will be willing to talk in my behalf for, for for like a ten percent just to. The work's already been done for the most part, but I'm just not going to close it. So for the young artists listening out there that are considering or wanting or pursuing to be professional artists like you, um, what does that conversation entail? With Obviously, you have to talk about what your fees are and oh, things it, like it, that, Oh, right? it varies. It endlessly varies. I, I've heard, you know, that's a good question, Brian, is that I have learned that every time... I try to be more aggressive with a shortcut. It takes twice as long. That just is me. I'm just, it doesn't work for me. Some people, 
and you've met some who are think of as like used car salesmen. That they're they're very, I mean they're very, they're very good at it in a way. It's not the way that I would respond, but for some presenters, that's what you need to do is they just be endless, endless, endless. And in fact, though, I remember there's a gig. I have this book that I'm going to take out that I don't even know if you've seen this book. You've seen this book, Are You Famous? So I, I, it came out in about 2008, but it was everything I knew about being a touring artist then. And I think I've told in that there was a gig I wanted to do in Minnesota, a place called the Cedar Cultural Center, which is a really nice nice venue. And I had heard that the, the artistic director, and maybe I think he was even the executive director, liked what I did and was interested. And I, and I had a go-ahead to call any day. Eventually, I think I reached him, it was like Thanksgiving Eve or Christmas Eve, it was like one of these odd times. But we settled on a date for, I think, April. And he even said, I admire your persistence. And if you hadn't kept at it, you would not have gotten this. Because it's, 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 it's I like what you do, but it's still, it's still really hard to, to get one of those slots. That said, when I do have that okay, I will be more tenacious. But until I get that okay, I have learned it is a very long game. And... What I've learned to do is it's all about showing up. And if it didn't happen this year, well, instead of like just bombarding with calls, I mean, all I do is I send like, I do a lot of postal mail to this day even. But, you know, email is a clutter. Phone calling, if you catch somebody on a wrong day, that is a killer because you pick up the phone and it's like the last person you want to hear if you're a presenter is somebody calling to just, you know, see what's going on. I don't want to be that person to be on the other side of messing up somebody's day. So I just go, well, I'll show up at the conference. You see if somebody's friendly or not. And if there's a click with it, well, you know, you may see them six months or a year the next year at the conference or the next year. And you send the, you know, they're going to be there. You send an envelope. And eventually when I do get work, it's often... It's the same work whether you're getting $5,500 or $5,000, and I like the $5,000 and up jobs, but that doesn't mean I won't do a $50 job when it's appropriate or a $500 job. It just, it's always, it depends, and even when you're approaching people, it depends on the situation. I've gotten jobs where there's no reason I'm at the head of the line where I've just met somebody I got a job a few years ago. It had been 15 years of reaching out every year to that person and even a little bit more than that. And eventually they said, yeah. And then they said, you exceeded my expectations. I'm going to have you back. And it won't be 15 years. I said, better not be. I won't be doing this 15 years from now. So as a, an artist that's on the road a lot, yeah, um, I'm sure there's some people that look at performing artists that are touring as like this glamorous lifestyle. <laughs> um, but the real aspect of it is there's a lot of a lot of downside to it too, a lot of loneliness, a lot of sacrifice. Um, can you just speak to some, not to bring you know the whole mood down, but just some of the the tough challenges that people maybe don't think about or or really see when they're pursuing this kind of work? There is that uh, that balance between the artistic life and in a sense your other life. But for me, I find it's all, it's all 
it works for me because it's become part of my social life is people in the arts and I I love what I do but if you don't love what you do boy it could be really disheartening and there's a lot of rejection all the time I mean I get rejected from as a writer I get rejected as a performer I get rejected as a kids artist and doing and I and I get some of these rejections I go I know they don't make any sense but I've taken the longer view of it. You just go, well, it just means I'm going to do something else that that weekend or that week. And it's just, it's, uh, it's okay, though, because at least for me, I get to, I, I found something that I, I completely engages me and takes, I have to be my best self to make this work. Whereas if I had done something else, I think I would have been in therapy most of my life. So, so I just want to, we're coming up to the, towards the end of our time, but I just want to make sure I ask you about conferences because that's where I've met you Yeah, first was at a conference. And I know you mentioned uh, Northwest before and uh, Tim who ended up leading WA. Um, can you just talk about as a self-represented artist, how you approach conferences, you attend them yourself? And it's an opportunity to see somebody face to face and you can see if somebody is friendly or somebody could be like, I see who they are. And I don't think I'm going to get along with that person. I don't have to work. I don't have to deal with that. But by meeting people also, if they're there at a conference, you can presume that they're there for some purpose. I look up everybody and I write to people ahead of time. And I have personal, I mean, I do handwritten envelopes. I put uh, things in, in the envelopes that are different than other what other people put in. I, I write, actually, I will write a poem for that season. And even if people don't quite get it, I feel like I'm educating the, uh, the presenters or the people in the business about poetry and about who I am. But I do have some fans in the business. And without the conferences, I, I mean, there's so many talented people and I'm okay. But by going there and you make those connections that every time there's a conference, if I can get there, but it's an expense. I mean, I, I'll hear people say, I can't afford to go because it's maybe, let's see, $500 to get in. And then if you want to have, if you're on an exhibitor, that's going to be another six or $700. Then you have to physically get there and then you have to get a hotel. And then suddenly you're in for $2,500 and then you may there may be showcasing fees there's other things but i do it as inexpensively as possible and if i it, it works for me now i've heard i've never been a, on the other side of the fence other than a presenter but i've heard non-presenters talk about exhibiting and showcasing and all of that and a lot of them they talk about the return on investment and they're, you know i've heard new ones that just come into the conference for the first time saying oh i've got to sell this many or i'm not going to come back are, in your mind, are these approaches... I do a lot of mentoring, and I'm told I've, I'm a pretty good mentor. I've had some mentees who have far exceeded what I've done with this. But, yeah, if, if, if you want to return on investment quickly, you should be doing something else. Or, you, or, else, you, or else maybe you're legitimately a genius. But even if you're a genius, it's not a question of being... Like, I can see the most virtuosic musician after 15 or 20 minutes like well what else can you do can you tell a story with it what's your show like and if uh if your show's good you know and you can keep at it more power to you but you could also 
like what I was told, like after a year, year and a half, if I wasn't very good, I would have been out of there. You could, you could showcase and have something that works for 15 minutes, but then if you may get the return and investment immediately, but if you don't have something more, if you just have the one show or one thing you do and you don't grow from it, you may be getting some jobs for a year, year and a half, and then you, then what? What else can you do? So I, uh, I have learned that it's 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 a long, slower. I mean, I and I, I'm going to go to a conference in Toledo, Ohio, in September. I'm going to go to one in Calgary, Alberta, uh, in late August, and they have the list of the, the attendees. And I look up, even if I know the people, I look up to see who they're bringing in, and then I see if there's somebody different, uh, who they are, and then I have a, a note to write them, and that may allow me to uh, have an in that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I uh, Not a lot of people know this, but I have a time machine that I invented. Oh. And uh, I'd like to bring you into it and go back to when you were 40, heading to the, or 40-something, heading to the lower 48. And you're only going to have time not to give him the whole story, but just to tell him um, one piece of advice that, that you wish you had at that time. I would just say to keep at it, that uh, have, have some fun with it, because I don't think I could have done things much differently. And, you know, keep at it and, and have fun. And, and I did keep at it, and I, I did have fun with it. And I'm in my mid-60s, and I'm told I don't look like I'm in my mid-60s. I think I'm pretty healthy. I love what I do. We're at an age where there are people who have been beaten down and uh, didn't do what they liked doing for a long time, and I I uh, feel very lucky. I know some amazing people, and I've done some... haven't done everything I've wanted, but I've done a bunch of things I have. I ask this of everybody that, that I see is the last question. What do you like most about working in this industry today? There's always, there's hope, there's opportunity. Uh, the people, you know, I, I, I love, uh, even today I was looking up people for uh, who I didn't know who were going to be in Toledo, looking up people who are going to be in Calgary. So I'm going to be sending out some black envelopes with white ink and um, they're going to get them some poems and I'm going to write to them. and. They may not pay any attention. They'll go, who is that guy? Or there'll be people that I've known. And I'll just go, yeah, I just like, uh, I like keeping at it. And, uh, and there's always hope with that, that people are going to pay attention and go, yeah, we can bring this, uh, this nomadic productions and we can do something with him, the fiddling poet, and he'd be fun to have around. I'm going to play my fiddle. So that'll be something that you go, well, why does this guy do this? In fact, one of the things that, that makes me laugh is I, I tell this story. I got a lot of stories I tell on stage. And when I grew up an hour and a half from here, there was in the elementary school, there was a choir and they put me in the speaking choir. That meant I could not sing. When I started playing fiddle in my mid-20s, I was waiting tables in Chapel Hill, North Carolina at a nice natural foods restaurant. People would go there on their birthdays and the wait staff would sing happy birthday. I was banned from singing happy birthday. They say, you're gonna ruin the tips, go cut desserts. But in Alaska, you learn you can do anything. So I'm gonna play this tune and I'll even sing it a little bit too. It's called Greasy Coat. I don't 
drink, I don't smoke, I don't wear no greasy coat. smoke I don't wear a greasy coat I don't spit I don't chew I don't go with girls who do Thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and it's great to see you in person. Thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks. So welcome back, everybody. I just have to explain something, um, what you just heard, because Ken came in. He was on the road traveling like he does, as you heard in the interview, and he happened to be swinging by Kutztown and and agreed to do this sit-down with me, which was fantastic. And he asked if he if he needed to play for this, I said, no, no, this is just a talking one. And right at the end of the interview, just as you heard, he said, you know what? I've got to play my violin. <laughs> I've got to play my fiddle. And he, t- he took it out. He didn't rosin the bow. He didn't t- even check to see if it was in tune and, um, and just played it. And afterwards, like I didn't even adjust the mics or anything. And I said, Ken, that was, I, that was great. I didn't know you were going to do that. Um, do, do you want to do a retake? Cause you know, there's a lot of squeaking and stuff. He's like, no, that wasn't my best, uh, my best performance, but you know, it's important for people to hear, especially younger people to hear that, you know, Hey, if he can play like that and be a a professional and make a living for so many years, then, then I can do it too. So he said, you know what, leave it the way it is. And I thought that was really special because a lot of people are so guarded, like, Oh, I, that has a lot of mistakes in it. I can't put that out there. And so I just, you know, I I wanted to mention that because I really appreciated Ken being willing to, to put that out there and be so vulnerable. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Brian, I love that you share that because I was really listening back to it, was so surprised at that moment. And it was such a lovely moment at the end of your discussion. Um, And I really appreciate that Ken is so genuine and so giving uh, with his music, with his poetry um, and with his life story. It was a really fascinating conversation. Well, and speaking about him being so giving, the fact that he handwrites notes and handwrites envelopes and gives you this amazing little package like i i always get a call from the office saying hey you've got something from alaska and i always know it's from ken and i'm always excited to see what he sent this time well and josh i actually didn't know ken before uh i met him at the oapn conference which happened in september and but before that we went to that conference you know you get all this mail and then there was this envelope with the handwritten, you know, my name and address on it, open it up and the poem inside, you know, pull it out. What is this? Pulled it out, read it at my desk and it made me tear up a little bit. I have to say the sentiment behind the poem was beautiful. It really made my day to receive something so personal and thoughtful and beautiful in an envelope in the mail. I just thought it was a really incredible way for Ken to introduce himself to me. And then when we actually met at conference, it made that meeting even sweeter. Well, and that also just goes to show that if you, you know, have a low cost, but like just genuine 
way of sharing yourself. Obviously, a handwritten poem isn't the right thing for every artist and every group. But, you know, what else is there if a brochure isn't? what is going to get the attention of a presenter, let alone the tears of a presenter. I know we've talked about this many times, and I, I shared the story about my first APAP experience with my mentor, Martha Woods, telling me to go out and introduce myself to 10 people. And Ken was one of the 10 people I just walked up to at the reception at APAP and said, hi, I'm Brian Zellmer. And I've never worked with Ken all these years because what he did never aligned with what I, I present at the venues I've been at. But you know, just like we've been talking about with so many people, we've still developed a relationship over these years. And I look forward, he'll send me those poems too. And honestly, it stands out. You know, it, it does stand out from all the clutter and all the emails and all the flashy marketing pieces and everything else. And just, I'll take a moment and I enjoy reading those poems. And I think about Ken for those moments and then I move on. And, and, and I always wonder where in the world he is at that moment because he's always on the go. But, um, you know, it's just, I think it's a great way to stand out and, and um, you know, it helps keep that relationship going, even though we're not working together. And, and what he talked about with like building relationships and whether he thinks you're going to be fun to work with or not, and whether he's going to pursue that if you're a nice person. And then like, you know, he had that relationship with that person for 15 years before they ever actually worked together. And Ken and I haven't known each other for 15 yet, but I think it's been 12. He and I have yet to work together. It's always right there in the back of my mind, but we've yet to work together. But I think he stopped in the theater amongst his travels at least three times. And some of the time, at like he'll no, he won't call me. He'll just pop in to the office and see if I'm available. And if I'm not, he leaves something for me and goes on. And I come back and I'm like, you mean they, he left this in person? They're like, yeah, he just popped in. And I'm like, <laughs> call me. Like an artist has literally come to the theater in, in the middle of nowhere because we're in the rural southern Illinois in the Midwest. And he's made a point of actually showing up at our door. And, and it's so appreciated that he takes that care in the relationships that he's building. It's not just, hey, we'll talk whenever at the conference. Like He really takes the care to, to reach out. It's a very personalized experience that he tries to give with each person, which is so refreshing because, I mean, who has time to do that? Yeah, and I think what I love about that is that he's created a lot of really personal relationships with people, but also that time that goes into that. And at this, you know, on the flip side, that he's still incredibly prolific with how much he is creating. I mean, you know, writing a book and writing multiple poems and sonnets and just the amount of time that he spends creating is is impressive and it's so genuine to him great marketing is like it shows you kind of like what the product is right i mean just generally all marketing and i feel like you know i i haven't worked with ken yet but i i feel like i understand what the the show or the experience would be because that marketing feels so genuine to him and this conversation really backed that up for me i want to circle back to the way he prepares for conferences in sending out the handwritten notes, but then he, he talked about how he researches and looks at everybody's roster that he that he is sending something out to. Like, he doesn't even have a meeting scheduled with them, and he's researching every person that's coming in case he gets a chance to talk to them. And I think that everyone going to the conference has a responsibility to prepare for the conference. If you have meetings set, I mean, as a presenter, I go through the roster of every person that I'm meeting with before I get there so that I know the product that they're talking about, so that our conversations are easier and our conversations can develop into something that is more relational rather than just reviewing a roster. That gives you a much more focused conversation and makes your conference experience a lot more beneficial and a lot more efficient. And again, gives you that time to have a legitimate conversation to build a relationship more than just reviewing a roster. And I think the same can be said 
on the agent side as well, if they have taken the time like Ken to review your space, your theater, um, it's so refreshing whenever I sit down with somebody in a meeting and they already have it written down. So you, you have this many seats. This is the type of things you've done. These are the things that I've seen you've done in the last year. Here's what I have in mind for you based on that. Yeah, it makes you feel a little special. I mean, like they've actually, they, they care about that. I just admire Ken's ability to travel around the country and have that nomadic lifestyle. That is not something that I could ever do. Like I just value my type A personality, value stability. <laughs> um, and it works for Ken though, but I think that just goes to show that like it takes all types to make this industry work. That is one style of being an artist. And it fits him and it feeds him creatively and I think and feeds who he is as a person. I could never survive like that, but I really respect it and um, love his like in his adventurous spirit. And so I just really appreciated him talking to us about that. And I think it gives some insight for especially those new to the field about like that is how some artists make it work, right? As they are driving from venue to venue, they are watching costs. They're, you know, trying to do the best that they can. Um and but it takes that tenacity to like have that lifestyle to get the bookings to build the relationships. Um, but I I could never do it. So kudos to Ken for, for being able to live that lifestyle because I just can't. So I, I will tell you, I have gone the last few years that I went to APAP to um, what he calls Ken's class party. And one of the things that I love about Ken is he manages to find like these really talented people. Uh, typically musicians, but not always. Some of them are dancers or, you know, but typically musicians that I had never heard of um, and never seen and just puts them on stage with him and uses his platform to sort of like elevate uh, their careers as well. And it's just, it's really impressive the relationships that he's built in that industry and like helps elevate them. And just because of him, I have met some really incredible artists and some other agents as well. I love our segment of Brian's time machine, um, even though he's stingy with it and only he gets to use it. The rest of us have to like metaphorically go back in time. But, but I like Ken's advice to himself is he wouldn't really change any of it. He would just say and tell himself to enjoy it more and to in- enjoy it and to just keep at it. And I think that's such great, great advice for, for anybody as we're pushing through in an arts career keep persistent, but enjoy what you're doing at the time that you're doing it. Because what's the point of being a part of the arts if there isn't some joy in there somewhere? If we're not getting to to enjoy and experience something within it that also enriches our lives, what's the point of being an admin within the arts or being an agent within the arts or being something that's behind the scenes if you're not getting to enjoy parts of the process as well and enjoy what you're doing to be part of this amazing industry. It's so true. Definitely. And I thank Ken for sitting down and taking the time to talk with me. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I hope you guys got something out of it too. And we'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? (laughs) I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslife.com.
gmail.com. Do I sound out bus Ines every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I had a hard time with thumb to the right because every time I put my hand up, my thumb was left. <laughs> I watched. I watched that build in your face, Danielle. That was the best. <laughs> what do you mean, thumb to the right?